So it's time for us to uh, open God's Word. Uh, So the reading today is Romans 5, verses 12 to 21, um, and that'll be on the screen behind me uh, and also on the slip that was on your outline when you came in. So it's Romans 5, verses 12 to 21. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, And in this way, death came to all people because all sinned. To be sure, sin was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not charged against anyone's account where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from the time of Adam to the time of Moses, even over those who did not sin by breaking a command, as Adam did, who is the pattern of the one to come. But the gift is not like the trespass. For if the many died by the trespass of one man, how much more did God's grace and the gift that came by the grace of one man, Jesus Christ, overflow to the many? Nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. The judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed many trespasses and brought justification. For if, by the trespass of one man, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the, uh, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of one man, the many will be made righteous. The law was brought in so that the trespass might increase. But where sin increased, grace increased all the more, so that just as sin reigned in death, so also grace might reign through righteousness to bring eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Good morning everyone at Colonel Light Gardens. My name is Cam Maxwell if we haven't met and I'm sorry I can't be with you preaching in person this week. I'll be doing that at the Tonsley Hotel instead. Uh, But it is great that uh, while we are spread out a little more than usual over two venues that we're still sitting together under the same part of God's Word. Uh, We continue to work through uh, the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul's majestic letter to the church in Rome. Uh, And a very big welcome to our year five sixes who uh, looked at this passage last week, uh, sort of thinking about it, preparing to come in and sit with us this week uh, as they kind of prepare to uh, move on from our kids' programs uh, in future years. So big welcome to you guys. And uh, here you've had some pretty hard questions uh, that come from this passage. Make sure you ask all your questions. Uh, Line up Matt Lehman or Katie Annis afterwards. I'm not there, sadly, this week to take all those questions from you. Uh, Today, uh, we get to see Paul as he takes a colossal step back from the argument he's been making so far in this letter. Paul kind of uses the widest lens possible uh, because he wants to know just how big the good news about Jesus is. Paul's shown us for about four chapters uh, now, four and a half chapters really, that uh, the news about Jesus is very good, but now the focus is on the very big picture. 
In this half of chapter 5, Paul covers all of human history, starting with Adam, the first of us, right through to eternal life. It's the full sweep. It's the very big picture. It's the story of us. Among other things in this chapter, Paul shows us that faith in Jesus is not just a personal thing. It's not just about me and my salvation. That is, the good news about Jesus is not little. It changes everything in our world and how desperately our world needs that change. Uh, Not too long ago, I came across a fascinating description of cryonics, uh, also known as cryogenics. Uh, The basic idea with cryogenics is that uh, if you die, or you're about to die, you can sign up to have your body preserved at super low temperatures. You're not technically frozen, but I'll, I'll leave it up to you to read about the science of it if you're interested. It's fascinating. Uh, The idea is your body is preserved for hundreds or perhaps thousands of years. Why? Well, I guess in the hope that someday uh, human science and technology will be able to reboot your body or at least your brain, uh, perhaps mapping your brain into an electronic form somehow. Uh, The idea is you'll be revived and continue to live perhaps forever. It kind of sounds very strange. It might sound like science fiction, but... Uh, The thing that was fascinating is that there are companies right now uh, where you can pay very good money to have your bodies put in vats of liquid nitrogen uh, for what they call long-term care. I kid you not. Uh, For a slightly cheaper option, by the way, you could just have your brain preserved and hope that technology be really good or you can find a body somewhere in the future or something. Now, that was fascinating enough, but what is fascinating is that those companies have good business Uh, There are hundreds of people already who, uh, as I speak, uh, well, not really people, they're bodies, hanging out in super cold vats, uh, and thousands more have signed on to join them. Now, what made the article I read about this so interesting for me was it's not just the science and the companies making good money out of this, but the the author, uh, he's a guy who thinks our world is only physical and material, and he knows full well how impossible the odds of this actually working are that cryogenics might give him uh, extended life. He knows there is basically no hope of it working at all. But for him, even basically no hope is, well, far better than certain death. So even after doing his research, knowing all the reasons it won't work, he apparently signed up with one of these companies. Uh, After all, he believes his body is all there is. So he thought, why not take the long shot? Maybe he could put his trust in humans' future ability to cheat death. Now, cheating death is, of course, nothing new. And in a world that assumes we are simply our bodies and our brains, uh, death is is simply caused by a breakdown of our bodies. So I guess, as ridiculous as it sounds, this is the only kind of hope for people who believe that. But what if death has a different cause? That is, what if it's not just a problem caused by biology? If that's the case, perhaps there's a better solution, and I certainly hope so. I don't really like being cold. So why is the good news of Jesus so good and so big? Well, because death death actually does have a different cause. It's a far bigger problem, actually, than uh, the breakdown of my body. So in our passage today from uh, chapter 5 of Romans, starting at verse 12, uh, Paul takes us to the heart of the issue. And if you have uh, the passage with you, it'd be great to read with me. You start in verse 12. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, and in this way death came to all people because all sinned. 
Now, you notice that the translators of our Bible have left that sentence unfinished, kind of just hangs there. Uh, Paul starts by saying, just as, and then he says all this, just as, and we wait for him to finish that comparison, but he doesn't. He gets to verse 13, kind of takes a tangent, uh, and it's kind of a tricky passage to follow. Uh, so well done for our year five and sixes for getting stuck into it. Paul does come back and finish the thought of verse 12 later, and we'll get to that. But what's he saying here in verse 12? Well, he's drawing from the account in Genesis, uh, the fall, the sin of Adam. And he does that to show us what the great problem is. One act, uh, one act of willful disobedience, one man changed everything. Now, I find it very hard to imagine what life uh, would have been like before this point. What would it be like to live in a world where there is no sin? I find it uh, very hard to imagine a world where everyone enjoyed uh, the good and right relationship with God properly. It's hard to imagine what harmony in our relationships and uh, success and satisfaction in all our work, what that would even be like. But it's certainly impossible to imagine a world without death. It seems, though, that uh, when Paul is speaking about death in Romans, uh, most often he's not just talking about biological death. Uh, it might include that. But what he's talking about here is what some people call total death. Uh, so have a look at the end of verse 21 on the passage you've got printed there. Uh, at the end of verse 21, Paul contrasts this death with eternal life as opposites. Have a look as well in verse 16. He says that following sin is condemnation. Uh, same sort of thing he said in verse 12. Death follows sin. The idea is in verse 12, death is the kind of death that is far worse than our organs failing. It's being condemned by the righteous and perfect and good source of life himself. Real death is to face the judgment of God. That's opposed to eternal life where even though our bodies fail, we're told that they will be renewed and our life will continue. The cause of death, the cause of this uh, total death, if I can put it this way, well, the punishment fits the crime. The punishment of death, it fits the crime of sin. That is, sin is the reason death is in our world because we've rejected the life giver. And that's the reason that death is so bad. Now, more than, any, more than anything else, I think this tells us just how bad sin really is. It's not just about breaking rules or doing the wrong things sometimes. Sin is a rejection of the one who gives life. It's relational. And now, the, the point that Paul is making in verse 12, he, yes, he's, uh, he's mentioning things like sin and death, but the point he's making here is that both sin and death are a result of one man, Adam. He says those things came into the world through him, and now these things affect all of us. It's kind of like Adam, the, the first of us, Adam represented us. And what he did as the head of our race, well, that affects everyone that he represents. Now, we might be quick to uh, place blame at Adam's feet here. I mean, he only had one job, uh, couldn't even keep one rule. He was a bit of a jerk, wasn't he, for, for ruining it for everyone else. Well, we could go that way. Uh, but before that, have a look at how Paul finishes verse 12. He says, in this way, death came to all people. He didn't say because Adam sinned. He says, death came because all sinned. That is, Adam just got things started. And then we happily got in line. We followed his example. And so our sin is just like his in every way. 
Now, if you've ever walked up uh, the side of a steep hill, there's uh, loose gravel and pebbles around, I think you'll kind of get this idea. You can just take a small movement, maybe just one stone starts moving, and, and then it moves and it, it picks up steam. It, it knocks other little rocks and stones. And then before you know it, half the hill is kind of just uh, chaos as uh, rocks come hailing down in a massive chaotic destruction. As a quick side note, that's why it's always worth being the first person in the hike up a hill, not uh, coming last. I think that's the same idea here with Adam. It started, uh, as his sin, it started the chaos in our world. And because of it, now destruction reigns. And again, in every way, we are just as guilty as Adam. All sinned, just as he did. And so all die, just as he did. Now, if you're here today as someone uh, listening, perhaps as someone who is new to all of this, uh, especially if you don't think of yourself as a disciple of Jesus, a very big welcome to you. It's so great that you could be with us. Um, perhaps you've been dragged along by someone, or perhaps you're here just trying to figure out who Jesus is and, and why he matters. Well, this account of uh, humanity might sound strange at first, but does it ring true for you in any way? That is, even if you're not sure how it all works, can I ask if you think this account of sin explains uh, the human story better than anything else? That is, I think this gives, uh, gives us a sense of what's going on, that we were created good, we have capacity for amazing good, we know this, humanity has achieved some wonderful things, beautiful things, but it's all tainted, at least a little bit. No matter who our heroes are, there is something that always takes the shine off of them, and so often, it's not just tainted a little bit, it's truly horrific what we can do to each other. So I guess the question is, how do you account for such capacity for good and for evil? I'm sure there are all sorts of ways of doing that and uh, good theories, but a broken sh- relationship with a good creator and the disastrous consequences that come with that, well, that model, that sort of idea, does it look at least as plausible with any other explanation for why we are like this? Doesn't this tell the human story better than anything else? Now that's verse 12, and we will speed up a bit from here. Uh, It just seems important, though, to understand what Paul is talking about with Adam and sin and death, uh, because that will help us understand uh, the point he's making about Jesus so much better. But before his big comparison, Paul does take us on a bit of a tangent, verse 13 and 14, I'll be honest, I don't fully know what Paul is talking about here. Uh, It seems what he's doing is anticipating some questions from uh, Jewish readers in his audience. That is, like they might be thinking, what what does the law have to say about this, Paul? Does the law help? And Paul sort of anticipates this and uh, he gives the answer. Now, I think the big idea is clear enough. The law that God gave Moses, it didn't really change things. If anything, it just made it worse. So Paul says that sin was in the world before God gave the law, you know, like the Ten Commandments. People were sinners because of Adam's sin, and they died. And after the law, people were also sinners. It's just that now they knew how much they were sinners, far more clearly. The idea is it's a problem for everyone, with or without the law, because Adam broke a command. But then in verse 14, we finally start with a new focus, because we see here that Adam is a pattern for the one to come. Adam sets a pattern It's a pattern that Jesus steps into to change the human story, to alter it dramatically and to fix all the chaos and destruction. 
Uh, if you have your outline there, you'll see uh, in, in the leaflet that Paul describes first how Jesus and Adam are different, and only then does he complete his thought from verse 12, how they are similar. So he starts first with how they're different, then he gets to verse 18 finally, and he shows us how they're similar, completing where we start in verse 12. It's uh, all a bit over the place. But I think there is a good reason Paul does this. I could be wrong, but I think that before he wants us to show us how Jesus and Adam are alike, I think he wants us to be very careful that we don't make the mistake of thinking they're the same. Paul wants to emphasize how different they are first to make sure we have that crystal clear. So that's what's happening in verses 15 to 17. Paul points out some major differences. The first difference in verse 15 is the nature of what Adam and Jesus both achieve. Adam, well, many died because of his trespass, the trespass of the one man. And if we've been following Paul so far in Romans and what he's been saying, he's just actually explaining what justice is in this case. That's a just thing, actually, for death to follow Adam's sin. But how much more, how much more than the justice we see with Adam, how much more do we see God's grace, uh, the grace that is a result of the gift of Jesus? So these are different in nature. In Adam, justice and judgment. In Jesus, grace. Not just a little bit, it overflows. It's abundant. And that shows us what God is like. After all this talk this morning of death and sin and judgment, the whole point all along in Paul's letter here is that God has done something amazing about it all. It's so great, it actually can't really be compared, he says. In verse 16, nor can the gift of God be compared with the result of one man's sin. He's saying they're so far apart, they're so different. Now, he spoke about the different natures in verse 15. Here in verse 16, he talks about the different outcome and just the scale of it. With Adam, judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation. So you think, well, wouldn't it be fair and sort of balanced if Jesus, if his gift would undo or cancel one sin? Uh, That seems to be the way you might expect it to go. But what does he say at the end of verse 16? That judgment followed one sin and brought condemnation, but the gift followed not one trespass, but many trespasses and brought justification. Now, do you see the difference here in what God's grace is like? Sin is such a big problem that Adam's sin wrecked everything. It brought condemnation. One sin, one trespass wrecked it all. But Jesus, his gift followed not one sin, but many sins. And he fixes it all. He undoes it all. God's grace is so much bigger than our sin. The avalanche of chaos dealt with as a gift as Jesus gives us justification. Now, we've talked quite a lot about uh, that word in our Roman series, justification. And if you're not sure yet uh, what that word means, uh, it would be well worth your time going back uh, and reading Romans chapters 1 to 5 again and perhaps going onto our website and finding uh, the sermons from early in the series. What is justification? What is it? Well, shorthand, I suppose, it's our right standing before God. It's how God sees us as right, as righteous, as blameless and good. So to go from being like Adam to being justified, it's no small thing. In fact, it's impossible for us to get there on our own. We'll see in a moment how Jesus does this for us. But for now, notice crucially in verse 17, it's not simply that everyone in the world is justified. Let me read verse 17 and see if you can pick out who it is that is right with God. 
For if by the trespass of one man, death reigns through that one man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace and of the gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? Did you pick it up? It's those who receive the gift who are right with God. Those who receive the gift. Now, this is a crucial point for us before we get to verses 18 and 19 because you might have noticed it might make it sound as you read verse 18 and 19 as if Adam affected every person and so Jesus justifies every single person. But that's not what Paul's really saying. In verse 17, and actually the rest of Romans makes this perfectly clear as well, God's gift of righteousness, making us justified through Jesus, it's a gift, it's given free, but to get the gift, to own the gift, well, you have to receive it. The gift of justification is not for those who reject it or ignore it. So Paul is reminding us very clearly there are only two outcomes here. There's death through Adam, which is actually everyone's starting point, or there is life through Jesus. That's the only two options. There's no middle ground. And what's more, the only way to be righteous and to avoid condemnation is to receive that gift, accepting by faith God's gracious salvation to us uh, in Jesus. In fact, what we see here is Paul describing two camps we could belong to, or perhaps thinking about it as two teams, either Team Adam or Team Jesus. Those in Team Adam, they live in the world that has been broken, and it's ruled by death. It's quite a a striking phrase. Did you see that in verse 17? Death reigned. Kind of like the worst kind of king ever. Death is the boss of this realm. It gets the final say. And that's the world. That's the realm outside of those who know Jesus. Death, condemnation, really does have the final say. We all know this. But those who receive Jesus' gift of righteousness, we live in his world now, in his realm. And he is the best kind of king. Amazingly, did you notice it's us who reign in life through Jesus? In Adam, it's a realm ruled by death, dominated by sin. But on team Jesus, we live in a new realm. We rule, we reign, truly alive. We're dominated by righteousness. Now, this is the difference between Adam and Christ, and it's a colossal cosmic importance because it only gives us two ways of living and only two outcomes. In fact, in the next few chapters, we'll start trying to think through how those two spheres work together because we realize, well, it's not exactly like we um, are free of the effects of sin and death in our world now. More on that next week. But what we see today is really the big idea that Paul gets to in verses 18 and 19. The similarity, the similarity he started out with between Adam and Jesus. He started in verse 12. He comes back to it finally in verse 18 with, I think, the big idea for today. Let me just read verses 18 to 19. Consequently, just as one trespass resulted in condemnation for all people, so also one righteous act resulted in justification and life for all people. For just as through the disobedience of the one man, the many were made sinners, so also through the obedience of the one man, the many will be made righteous. The way that Adam and Jesus are similar is that what they did determines what happens to all who follow them. Now, this is perhaps a strange way for uh, for many of us to think. Uh, Western people, we tend to think of our individual responsibility 
we get what we personally deserve. I think we've seen enough of Paul to realise he does agree with that. But the concept where, um, that we also belong to a group, that we are part of something bigger than ourselves, uh, that's not usually how we think in Western world, where the group's destiny is set by a representative, not the individual. We might not think of that uh, naturally all the, all the time, but I think we do get that concept. Uh, now, I'm recording this sermon on Friday afternoon, and between now and when you'll be watching this sermon will be, of course, the AFL Grand Final. Which, of course, means, uh, as you're watching this, there'll be some in Australia who, and even some at Colonel Art Gardens, who will be uh, very sad that their team lost. Others, of course, will be elated, very happy that their team won. And you know what's their team? Their team. Because they don't talk about Richmond won or Geelong won. They say, we won. Uh, We scored in the last minute. What a game. And they kind of recount all the the play-by-play as if they were on the field themselves. Now, if that... Um, Now, we know that it was only sort of one person, perhaps, who kicked the goal right at the end of the game to to clinch the grand final. Yet for everyone who's part of that team or or just fans of that team, part of that realm, their destiny, it depended on that one kick uh, under under pressure in the dying seconds. That representative sealed the destiny of the team and that whole realm. Adam, his one trespass, it resulted in condemnation. I guess uh, to extend the metaphor, Adam didn't just miss the goal in the dying seconds. He kind of broke his leg and somehow killed the umpire. And just His team will never recover from that. It's an absolute disaster. But Jesus, his one righteous act, his death on the cross, well, it's pretty hard to extend the football metaphor too far, but it's like his one kick didn't just win the grand final. It's like he's won all the games forever for his team. Where Adam failed... And where every single one of us failed as well, Jesus succeeds. His obedience, it resets the course of human history. So his obedience, we see that word in verse 19, in his whole life, Jesus was obedient. He never once disobeyed his father, his heavenly father. Especially in his death, Jesus was obedient. Jesus willingly, although of course sadly, uh, he went through with that one great act of righteousness, the likes of which history has never seen before and will never see again, where the perfectly innocent person willingly steps in to pay the price for many trespasses, the price uh, he pays for his enemies. He experienced total death on the cross so that we don't have to. What Jesus does on the cross, as Paul kind of unpacks this, is he establishes a new kind of humanity. We're not stuck helplessly in kind of the sin and death of Adam's realm, If we receive this gift, we have justification and righteousness. We have eternal life in Jesus. So do you see how in this passage, Paul has kind of painted a picture of these two realms, these uh, two domains we can live in? It shows how each of these realms, uh, it's kind of defined by its representative. We're able to move actually from the realm of Adam into the new realm of life, but only through faith in Jesus. So who needs... Cryogenics, if you have faith in Jesus. Now, as Paul finishes this section, it might feel like a bit of a side note getting to verses 20 and 21, as if he's perhaps clarifying to the Jewish audience in Rome how the law kind of fits into it all. Uh, That might be the case. But I think more than that, Paul wants to see how grace, how the grace of God is just so gigantic. When the law came along, it didn't fix the problem of sin. Uh, 
God's law, in fact, is that it tells us what's right and wrong. It just exposes how wrong we all are so often. And perhaps as well, uh, the idea that when we know, uh, we can see the fruit is forbidden, it just looks that little bit better and we are perhaps enticed to sin all the more. Paul's point is that the law led to an increase in sin. And of course, the just thing for God to do would have been to leave us to our own devices and allow us to be condemned under the law. But God is not like that. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. And like death reigns, now grace reigns, freely bringing us eternal life in Christ Jesus. See, God's plan all along was to be God, to allow His grace to triumph and to shine through, to allow His righteousness to reign through Jesus. What a good plan. But you might have noticed, uh, today I have skipped a word uh, in our passage. It was right back at the start. You might have noticed, therefore, I haven't really uh, picked that up here. I'd normally start there. I'd normally try and explain what Paul has just been talking about in the previous passage and how the therefore uh, links us and helps us understand what's going on in this passage. Today, I thought I'd do something a bit different and take the therefore at the very end. Uh, and the, Part of the reason I've done that is I think the therefore at the start of verse 12 it actually points us to the, well, so what of this passage? That is, I think the therefore just helps us think a bit more about why did Paul tell us all this? It's a pretty complex passage. It's hard to understand. And like, to be honest, do we need this in the Bible? It's, can we just stick to the easier bits? Well, why is the passage here? Or more to the point, so what? The therefore triggers a, a memory to, to help us think, what has Paul just been talking about before this passage? What he's been saying is that uh, we can be so sure of our eternal life if we have faith in Jesus. It doesn't depend on what we feel. It doesn't depend on what we've done or our history or our sin. Our justification depends entirely on Jesus and what he has done. Now, that point matters so much that Paul continues in this passage that we've looked at today, explaining how this works and why we should have such confidence. What he does is he shows us that salvation is far bigger than being just about me. It gives us confidence, doesn't it? Because what Paul's saying is this is true at a cosmic scale. Jesus has given a new realm to live in where there's eternal life. We can't escape or cheat death ourselves we don't impress God with our morals, but we enter that realm through trusting in Jesus. What Paul's showing us is this is too big for us to stuff up. Last week I, I spoke about why this assurance we have brings us great joy and confidence and how to live in light of that. And so again, this week I just want to say we should be left in absolutely no doubt. If we trust in Jesus, our future couldn't be safer. The picture is far too big. God's plans are far too certain. And so praise God for his grace. But why I think it's so helpful for us to see this very big picture is, well, yes, it's true that Jesus died for me and he forgives my sin. But it's crucial for us to see that salvation is far bigger than me or you. I think this really big picture at the cosmic scale helps lift our eyes away from ourselves, focusing first on God's grace and giving him thanks. But it also shows us that Christianity isn't about the little things, like sort of being nice to each other or living your best life now or sort of having purpose or meaning now. This is far bigger than any of those things. It's 
This is something that's for humanity. Salvation is for anyone who trusts in Jesus. It's not a small thing to pass from death to life. It's taken a fundamental change in human history to bring that about, which means well, nothing can take it away from us. But seeing this big picture, it also gives us great confidence in the work of missions. Do you look at the world this way? Do you see the realm of Adam and the realm of Jesus? And do you see how good and how big the good news is? It might sometimes feel like belonging to Jesus is just a little thing. We might get to see a few people like us on a Sunday morning at church or in our community groups. We might have one or two family members or one or two colleagues at work who we know belong to Jesus. But otherwise, it just feels small, like we're part of a smallish group. But through the course of human history, the gift of Jesus and the grace of God has gathered a whole new people, a huge multitude, and it continues to gather more and more people out of the realm of Adam and into eternal life. I think if we can grasp how big this is and how big God's plans are as a church, well, I think all of us, we, we see with compassion all those who are lost, all those who are in need of justification. I think we, of course, want to work out how to plant churches and to reach new people with new churches all around our city and our state with, with the good news, even if it's hard. I think it means we pray for our missionaries, like Mike and Karen we heard from earlier. Uh, we want to partner with them and encourage them. I think if we see the world with this big picture, it means we have a go at those awkward conversations, uh, seeing if someone would like to find out a bit more about Jesus or maybe read uh, one of the Gospels with us, perhaps using uh, the great resource we have, the Word one-to-one. But of course it means finding ways to bring God glory and praise for His grace as we try and reach out and connect with new people in our neighbourhood and encourage them to see Jesus as the one who brings eternal life. So would you join me as we pray? Lord God, we do thank you for your gift and that it cannot be compared with the result of Adam's sin. We thank you that your grace and your mercy in Jesus is so much bigger and extends to everyone who will receive it. So we ask for each of us that we would find great assurance in these truths. And we ask by your kindness that you would uh, please use us. Please use our time, our energy, our abilities, our prayers, our resources. Uh, Please use us to see many who are lost in Adam. Uh, Help them find faith in Jesus and receive your gift of eternal life in his name. And so please help us always rejoice in your grace and your saving power. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.